0: Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets Show, a new podcast series from the Investors Chronicle. Each week, our panel of IC staff get together to discuss, well, you guessed it, the latest companies and markets news. This week, I'm joined by Alex Newman, Mark Robinson and Gemma Slingo. We dive into some of the ramifications of the conflict uh, in Ukraine, as well as looking at the banking sector and a little bit at logistics as well, before Julian Hoffman comes on the pod to discuss his feature, Ready for a Turnaround, The Art of Distinguishing Value Traps from Recovery Gems. Without further ado, let's get going. And welcome back to the Companies and Markets show. I'm John Rogers. Joining me in the studio, Alex Newman. Hi, Alex. Hi, John. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. And also Gemma Slingo. Hi, Gemma. Hi. Podcast debut. Welcome. Uh, And then over the internet, we've got Mark Robinson as well. Hi, Mark. How's it going, John? Yeah, good. We replaced you with a different Australian last week, but it's good to have the original back. Yes. (laughs) Um. Well, it's 4pm uh, it's, uh, on Thursday as we record, so things may have moved on a little for your good selves, listener. But of course, we, we woke up this morning to reports of Russian missile strikes in Ukraine. And uh, our thoughts are with everyone on the ground there and in our Investors Chronicle uh, world as well. The, the ramifications have been felt pretty much uh, instantly too. Global markets taking a hit across the board as investors shy away from Russian exposure. Uh, including a 20% drop in the Moscow Stock Exchange and 40% in the RTS um, over the course of the day, uh, and meanwhile, oil prices have topped $100 a barrel for the first time since 2014. I wonder if oil is a is a good place to to start our discussion, um, Alex. Uh, maybe you can chime in on this first.
1: Yeah. Um, well, obviously the the leap higher for for oil prices which were already just a fraction below a hundred dollars before the um, you know the full scale ground invasion Um, today there was a uh, a mixture on uh, of supply constraint concerns but also fears about the uh, knock on effects for um, you know the conflagration in in Ukraine I mean it's very fast moving as you said Um, uh, it's unclear what's gonna gonna happen here at the moment it seems that Russian oil supplies, but which could be one of the um, focuses of uh, sanctions activity, aren't going to be targeted. But I mean, you know, once this go, you know, when this this podcast goes out, that could be on the table. Um, if if that were to happen, then we could certainly see oil reaching, you know, climbing considerably higher, considering that um, they account for about five, nearly five million barrels uh, of oil exports a day onto the, the global market. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, no surprise that, you know, in, in periods of extreme heightened geopolitical volatility that also involve one of the largest oil producers that we, we're seeing these kind of moves. And the other knock-on effect is what this is doing to, this might do to um, supply uh, chains and uh, trade routes, particularly in the Black Sea. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, so much up in the air right now. So it's, it's no surprise that you're seeing these considerable spikes in in commodities um uh gold is up uh a lot a lot higher albeit for different reasons um but but yeah i mean um yeah some enormous moves in, in the markets today mark i mean you um you, you you did a piece before uh before you know it really hit the fan on on bp as well i mean that i suppose uk investors are focused on the oil price, but they're they're probably more focused on the companies which, um, which are you know ex- most exposed to that. I mean, it's very interesting to see, despite the you know the new leg up for oil prices this morning, the BP was down. I mean, that was something you you yeah. see, you seemed to it, anticipate. It was, for... it was a
2: speculative piece, of course, but it, it's it's not too difficult to imagine that uh, investors would be primarily concerned in the UK over uh, BP because of its uh, Nineteen point seven percent stake in uh, Rosneft, uh, who is is uh, Russia's main oil exporter. It's you know we, we, we're just second guessing what politicians might do here, but I think there would be a, a somewhat um, they would be somewhat reluctant to actually ban oil exports outright into the into the European Union and world markets itself because um that market is incredibly tight at the moment anyway we uh, i've spoken on the podcast before about doubts over saudi spare capacity and it's by no means clear whether opec could actually release uh, enough production in world markets to keep a lid on prices if say for instance uh, instance russia was forced out of uh, out of the export market temporarily And, you know, all this comes when inflation is flying ahead and the prospect of oil at $120, $130, $140 a barrel uh, would frighten policymakers as well, because I mean, that's the the main reason behind the general drive of inflation as well, Uh, Joe Biden's tried to um, uh, blame on supply chain disruption, but actually if you go back to the uh, first days of his administration Uh, He was cancelling all pipelines in uh, the United States, Canada, and uh, that sends out a message of course, um, and and plus he stopped uh, exploration on federal lands in the US. That sends out a strong message to the industry, um, and and since then, uh, US production has been faltering somewhat. If they were back in the game fully, um, the situation at the moment wouldn't be quite so acute, I think. Um, I I, I guess politicians, apart from the obvious security angle as well, would also be uh, very wary because of the effect that it would have on credit markets over time. You know, the one place you wouldn't want a credit card at the moment is in Moscow because the cost of debt there is um, soared overnight. That's probably predictable in a sense. But if inflation keeps on moving ahead here, then central banks will have to think seriously about um, a multiple rate rises in the year. It's just such a fine balancing balancing act in economies at the moment because we're a step away from from a full blown recession. I, I would venture, mm. um, and the, the oil price could be could, could actually just trigger that if it keeps on going up at the rate it is at the present time.
1: I suppose, I, I suppose it's you know doubtless part of the calculation that. Um putin has made uh in in you know timing this invasion now is that i mean gas prices are already very very high europe is very you know very nervous about uh being cut off from from uh those supplies right now so that kind of you know it gives it gives russia a, a, a kind of strategic hand in in all of this and then ditto oil um, yeah. but yeah
2: oil consumption goes up traditionally during the spring and summer months in the northern right. hemisphere yeah. as well but um you know conversely uh, gas imports uh, trail off a little bit but not enough to make that much of a difference i mean it's a, it's it's obviously a very worrying situation not just from uh, a security perspective because we're really at the wrong place and time to be to have this level of disruption after two years or so of uh, pandemic uh link problems now we've got this
1: yes yeah, it's, it's panning out. it's planning to be a pretty bad decade isn't it so far i'd say but um
2: it is but, but by, the, by the same token as well you know the old uh, rothschilds uh, axiom about uh getting into markets when there's blood on the streets might hold true as well it sounds rather uh, uh yeah. cynical on the basis but it is true i mean if uh if markets if markets do pull back uh, appreciably as a result of present events as well it's a it's a time when our uh, really should be looking at um, potential uh, bargains in the market
1: yeah i mean I, I i suppose i suppose there is also you know considerable volatility at the moment as well isn't there and there's a lot of emotion there's a lot of a lot of noise and it's hard to detach any of that from signals and yeah i mean like i suppose as a magazine we don't take day you know day trader style outlooks Really? We're we're kind of we 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 focus about the you know, the long term prospects and they're obviously modelled somewhat uh when you have such enormous, you know, sort of historical events like this. But um but I mean was, there's was an interesting quote from um Chris Weston, uh, the head of research at Pepstone who this week said that that um you know, trading in in headline-driven market is not for everyone. It requires a dedication to being in front of the screens and understanding of what is noise and what is signal, and an ability to keep emotions in check. And I, I suppose it's, you know, unless you unless you can, you know, you're, you're seeing red across your screens at the moment, and that is sparking fear, and you're trading on fear, um, then you know, p- perhaps the sort of sage advice to kind of stay stay invested um it these these kind of moments really um you know is, is we, worth, we always make like that
2: you... point here. you know study after study has shown that uh you know to keep hold of your holdings um sort of quality holdings over a long period of time is the best way to uh build your wealth and certainly you don't want to be reactive uh any more than the writers of uh investors chronicle want to be as well um but i i suppose uh in recent times, we've been through the, the shortest bear market in history, and I imagine that a number of our readers did pretty well out of that. Um, you know, you're always trying to avoid timing markets; that's a bit of a fool's errand. But I, I do think that it's worth keeping an eye on prospects um, uh, during when you ever get, whenever you get a general sell-off as well. It does present uh, opportunities to to get into. Uh, Quality companies at a more viable a share price.
1: Yeah, and I mean, with a few exceptions, I suppose in, in the UK market, you, um, I mean, you, talk, you talked about credit markets in Russia. I mean, mercifully, global equity indices aren't that exposed to uh, the forty percent falls. What have we seen today um, in in the Russian market? But um, but you know, if you're an investor in polymetal or Forexpo Expo um, or BP today, you are obviously. You know you're weighing your options, um, and those are very difficult calculations, aren't they? To to know what the exposure is um, to those companies. So um, yeah, I mean we'll we'll be covering it in the weeks ahead, I'm sure. In great, if, uh, if you're a,
2: if you're a shareholder in BP, the main thing you'd be worried about at the moment is uh, your dividend coverage as well, because of uh, uh, Rosneft dividends for Rosneft that account for a, a fair proportion of uh, free cash flow generation for BP. And that's going to have a knock-on effect on dividends if uh, any. You know, if they're out of the game for any length of time. Um, I, th- I think we, we spoke this morning in an editorial meeting as well as have have a another review of uh, defense stocks, both in Europe and in the U.S. as well. Because if you take a step back, if, if the um, if the problem in Ukraine ends tomorrow, or ends in a, ends in a week, or ends in a month you would think that attitudes towards defense spending in, uh, in Europe as a whole may be permanently altered as a result of this incursion uh, by Russia, uh, which in itself may present uh, opportunities, or at least it makes it worth looking at the sector uh, again. Uh, during the Trump administration, uh, he was haranguing other NATO members for not uh, keeping up with their um, with their requirement to spend uh at least two percent of gdp on uh their armed forces this time around it might be a, a sort of more pressing uh in, incentive as it were so we'll have a look at that in, in probably the next issue of the magazine as well I, I,
1: the just final point on that just you reminded me uh a colleague um, arthur Santz also made an interesting point we we're just talking about this earlier he he's you know, an- another potential idea on that theme of you know not not to highlight companies that benefit from um you know benefit or profiteer from war, but I mean, the, one of the potential fallouts from the current situation is, you know, lots of people are speculating about if it widens that the use of cyber attacks, which is you know a new form of warfare that we're all still getting used to and understanding, could escalate. And you know, there are cybersecurity firms out there, which um which you know whose services are possibly going to be in greater, even greater demand uh, following what's happened, uh, you know, the last few days and what may may come in the months ahead. So um, yeah, I mean, lots of food to thought that, food for thought that we'll probably unpack, I, I imagine.
3: Yeah, in sort of contrast to the the world of cyber, I was having a look at um, sort of the heavy industry sectors, thinking about how that might um, be affected by the energy price rises, which obviously have been ongoing for a while. Because um, I know shortly before Christmas, the chief executive of DH, um, DS Smith, sorry, um, which is a packaging company, was demanding more support from the government because of these rising energy costs, um, saying the UK was sort of in a worse position than Europe and the government needed to step in. Um, and obviously, if those costs continue to climb sort of quite sharply, if if, things, um, if today's news is anything to go on. I feel sort of the heavy industry might start to suffer even more. And so far, the costs have been passed on to consumers. But presumably at some point, that's going to have to stop. Um, Because I was covering Kingspan as well this week. um, And their margins had actually started growing. Um, They produce sort of building materials. um, But I feel if the costs do continue to climb, eventually they're going to start feeling the squeeze.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like the you know the cost of living squeeze that we're sort of all you know before before we all started talking about war was the you know the big topic of the last two weeks as well. It seems really that companies have been quite adept at, at managing their their margins over the last six months and passing that on. But yeah, I mean, can they can they keep on can they raise prices again over the next six months? As yes, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I suppose our outlook for corporate earnings is quite un uh, quite uncertain if they. If they if they may struggle to do that, but um, and how that might affect demand.
0: Mm, Yeah. Well. Well. Thanks, guys. Well, as 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 you said a couple of times, we'll um, we'll keep up the reporting as the as the the drama unfolds. I guess as 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 we've said by by this time tomorrow, (laughs) what we've said may already start to look slightly relevant. But anyway, um, let's move on to a to a slightly um happier place. Uh. If well I've never described banking as as happy before, but by comparison, um Mark, you've uh, you've been responsible for writing up some of the results. Uh is it HSBC and Barclays? Uh you've been on yeah, this week.
2: Yes. Uh, I just wanted to make a couple of comments uh about that as well. Julian Hoffman is covering Lloyd today and I haven't had a chance to uh, to go through the figures. But um I guess the, the, the most interesting point uh, that came through to me was that I think the banks have been overly pessimistic um, about the, the level of credit default coming up about as a result of the pandemic, because uh, you see, in the, in the case of HSBC, their profits were boosted by a, uh, a net release of nearly a billion dollars in, in credit provisions as well. Uh, it was much the same uh, with Barclays, but albeit on a, on a different scale as well. Um, and even though with the HSB, their, their statutory profit was just shy of consensus estimates, um, it, it's improved markedly uh, because of the uh, recovery in lending opportunities and also um, quite a steep rise in, in fee income as well. Their, the investment uh, arm of the bank has done particularly well over the last 12 months, too. Um, you know, geographically, they they did well uh, across the board, uh, but it was their UK banking op- uh, operation which uh, was probably the standout uh, the standout performer there as well. Mark, was there, um,
1: sorry, Mark was there was there much comment on their um, their operating expenses going up and you know the bonus season starting to stretch uh, those initial expectations.
2: Yeah, I think that was more the case with HSBC than, than Barclays. Obviously, I think Barclays had a pool of about 1.7 billion pounds, which is um, uh, well in excess of what they've had in recent times. But um, I think they had a, a Barclays had something like a return to shareholders of uh, uh, 15%, a total return to shareholders of 15% through the year as well. So I don't think you know to worry too much if. Um, your uh if your traders and investment bankers are, are starting to coin you in again as well uh you know and, and as well uh, the, the capital ratios were were largely unchanged from last time around as well that might change over the next year with, with, um, with barclays uh just given the the, the returns to you know the, the buybacks they've initiated another buyback of course um you know, they, they seem in, in reasonable sort of balance at the moment. I get, I guess, will invariably get comments in the press uh, about the level of bonuses if that creeps up too much. But what is what is too much? I mean, if uh,
1: surely there's only so much the press can cover at any one time.
2: At the moment, definitely, definitely. I mean, I'm thinking with HSBC. It's interesting at the moment because uh, there's various uh, regional issues that. Uh, Weighed upon the results, uh, not least of all the, uh, the the Chinese property market as well. Now that that has fully that has yet to fully uh, play out, um, but it it represents um, near to medium term risk factor to the company as well. It just makes me wonder how long it will be. I mean, I, I've been musing on the fact that you, you would imagine eventually that they'll switch headquarters over to Hong Kong. But the security situation right there might, might uh, force something of a rethink
0: on that. Well, thanks for that, Mark. And you can uh, can read read those uh, read those write ups on our website. Um, and before we go, just before we go, and while we've got uh, Gemma here, we should get the latest from your beat, which is technically
3: well, technically professional services, but it seems to to span a few <laughs> few different firms, as
0: it as it tends to here. But. Um, You've reported on a takeover bid in the logistics sector. Sector.
3: Yeah, so in the um, glamorous world of logistics, it emerged on Monday um, that a company called Clipper is poised to accept a takeover bid from one of its big American rivals um, called GXO Logistics. Um, So in a nutshell, the deal would value Clipper at about a billion pounds, slightly less. Um, But I think sort of beyond the specifics of it, it highlights an interesting trend uh, sort of in the logistics sector. So I think for a long time, logistics and haulage have been seen as pretty low margin and pretty unglamorous. Um, But the tide might start to be turning slightly, um, particularly since the pandemic when we've been buying a whole load of stuff online and then usually sending a whole load of it back again, which is um, sort of engaging with these companies a lot more than we have been in the past. Uh, So it seems a lot of the excitements around um, e-commerce um, and Clipper is a retail logistics company which teams up with companies like John Lewis, JD Sports, those sorts. Um, and analysts seem to be suggesting that's where a lot of the growth opportunities are. Um, so I think basically it would just be interesting to see if this deal has a knock-on effect in the industry and whether companies, um, I suppose like Canton, might be affected by the deal um, and whether you'll see more investors being drawn into this space which have previously been been pretty ignored and unloved. Um, so yeah it'll just be an interesting one to watch I think
0: okay beautiful thank you everyone Uh, unless there's any other any other business before we go Um, thank you so much for for joining me Um, we'll catch up with you again next week and stay with us listener because I'll be chatting to Julian Hoffman now uh, about his cover feature uh, ready for a turnaround the art of distinguishing value traps from recovery gems and we'll be there right after this great so we've got Julian Hoffman back on the podcast Uh, your article is on the very front cover of our latest edition of the magazine ready for a turnaround the art of distinguishing value traps from recovery gems Um, what got you interested in that Julian
4: Uh, thank you for the introduction John yes it's my first cover feature since 2014 having returned to the Investors Chronicle so it's uh, it's quite an exciting moment I got interested in this topic so i i had a, a bit like a sort of dad shouting at the television um at the start of the year i was looking at a lot of articles you know you as soon as you put recovery shares into google or uh, any other search engine uh, you always get these kind of seven shares that uh, seven shares for people getting older seven shares for post-conflict situations which might be relatively apt actually is uh, the current situation but I, I looked at these and I thought, actually, the, there isn't any methodology behind this. There's no there's no one saying what is the actual art of picking out a recovery share and how does it differ from just saying that the, the price of something is cheap? OK, so you've got there, there is there is. So when I started researching it, I actually came across a whole literature about uh, a whole um, academic literature all coming out of the States, obviously, in the middle part of the 20th century where. People who'd been through the depression uh, had seen the destruction of a lot of companies uh, a lot of shareholder value in the 1930s started to formulate a way of thinking about how to get profit out of situations where companies have got to turn themselves around so as opposed to saying these shares are going to recover just because they're cheap the way that i've approached the article is to look at uh, specific corporate situations and how investors can get in in those and profit for them and the key really is just to find what those are so as you said in your your intro the, what is the difference between a recovery share and a value trap well i think that there is there are various interpretations of this but the easiest way to say it is that a company that is limited in some way by its legal framework by its ownership structure um by the fact that it can't grow its earnings um more than in line with the business or, or the general market is a value trap so uh, there isn't there aren't many corporate actions that you can take that would turn that situation around and make it different whereas what you need to look for as an investor is actually the opposite you're looking for companies where there is a possibility that the management's actions will make a substantial difference to their operating and performance and, and that I think is the crucial difference between the two and And I've gone into lots of I I looked up, uh, um, you know, I started to follow different managers, for example, what have they done over a period of time at different companies? And, um, you know, what were the actions they took that actually made a difference? And you know, there were some quite interesting results that came out of that, that you know, it was a very, you know, it, it suddenly defined, you know, that there is a lot of investing that isn't about just picking something on the basis that the PE is at a certain level that there is a You have to follow a backstory, and you have to look at the um, the story behind the story, as it were, in order to get the the true sense of recovery share.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting that there's actual a sort of theses and doctrines behind, uh, you know, uh, finding that recovery share. And you cite one one seminal book uh, in the article.
4: Yes, that's right. the special situations in uh, bonds and shares, I think it's called. It's from 1955. It's by a guy called Maurice Schiller. He's a very interesting character. He, He's a near contemporary of uh, Benjamin Graham, who is the kind of the godfather of value investing. But his experience of the 1930s was radically different. So he was looking at um, yeah, his specialization was companies who were restructuring. So that was where he started and he worked out that if you looked at certain types of corporate situation that you could work out what the profit would be on the back of those so if a company consolidates or it merges there is a certain amount of cash profit that you can you can bring out of that and that will translate into the shares into the share price in a certain way as well so um it's a very interesting idea really that you 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 buy a share on the basis that you know how much money you're going to make and it's not um it's not a question of uh well uh, you know the this level and in in three or four years time they may go up by x amount of, per, amount of percent you're, you know you go in thinking i'm going to make 15 percent on this particular situation and then you you know his idea is that you then sell out pretty quickly you're not a you're not a particularly long-term holder um but it, then it does then depend on on the type of situation you're looking at so you know you tell if you if you if you go into the idea that changing management is always a good is always a a trigger for a a share price recovery um, then you could probably stick around for three or four years you you wouldn't see the the profit out of that um, immediately so it's all about the market catching up with the situation rather than the situation leading the market Um, so that I mean I I think that that um, I hope came across quite quite clearly in article Um, and there are just people who who are good at restructuring companies i think there's you know there's a guy to talk about called leo quinn and um who's currently the ceo of um and when you look back at his record over quite a few years over more than 20 years as a as a senior manager he's always he's always managed to turn the companies around he's worked in and and the shareholders who stuck with him always made really good profits out of it and yeah it's all about a willingness i think on the pop- on the part of the management to, to take on a business and really have a go at it and uh, radically remodel it i think that's that's the only way that these kind of situations work and you know your task of an investor is to try and pick those out uh, and to say well at the end of the day how much money are i going to make out of this and and i think the article is really about the methodology uh, the methodology that you can use to do that
0: yeah. I mean, a, a large portion of it, you you write your five corporate actions that can trigger recovery. And one of them is the change of management. And you've just mentioned um, your guy, Leo Quinn, and uh, you write about him. I don't want to give away all five, um, Julian, because we want to send people to the article itself. But maybe you could give another one. I mean, you, you've written spend your way to success, the case of AstraZeneca. Could you give us the background on that?
4: Yeah, when Astra, we we talked a lot about Astra um, a couple of weeks back on the podcast. But um, the reason I picked them out as a special situation is that it was a classic example of a, a company that needed a new personality to take it in a different direction. But the only way that 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 vision could be fulfilled was by spending every last penny that Astra could afford at that point. Um, so what I I thought the the way that you could you could look at that special situation was to judge, make a judgment of the balance sheet and, and to see how, how many years into the future they could afford to keep spending at a very high level. And um, so we sort of had to run the numbers on it and it, it is basically a decade long story if you want to do something like that. Um, but again, it, there, is a, there is a sense of a personality has to come in, in order to trigger that situation. So they have this, they bring in the Swiss guy from Roche he was running a Roche division and he's got a vision about how to how to restructure AstraZeneca. Astra had been coasting for years up to that point. Um, they were sitting on 18 billion of cash. Uh, they just seemed content to to hand out dividends every year that were, you know, kind of coming from a shrinking level of profits. And, uh, you know, this 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 Swiss guy comes in, Pascal Sorio, says, OK, this is enough. Enough, enough is enough. Uh, we have to we have to remodel the company and we have to have a vision about what you want to do. So he went into cancer treatments in a very big way and now Astra arguably is one of the most successful um, oncology companies certainly in Europe um, and probably comparable with the best of the US ones at the moment I would say Um, and the valuation now from going from what was it eight times earnings if you were lucky is now more than doubled in that time um, as has the debts of, of obviously but you know the difference is that because their products now are so high value and so i'm bringing in so much cash that they could afford now they can afford to service that uh, that that long-term debt um so yeah there is a yeah there is that sense that that come what come what may it does take one person to sort things out and um but you do have to pick you have to match the person to the situation i think that's the way that i looked at it
0: mm. Well, Julian, thank you so much uh, for that little preview. Um, as I say, you are you're on the front cover, and and the article can be read on page twenty two uh, of our magazine, starting on page twenty two. Is a good what two and a half thousand words in there, something like that?
4: Oh yeah, um, easily. I think uh, probably even even three thousand by oh, the time I finish with it. But, even uh... three thousand. <laughs> yeah so if people get through the first 22 pages it will be there (laughs) plenty plenty to
0: get your teeth into um thank you so much julian we'll catch up with you again next week hopefully (laughs) the companies and markets podcast was edited and produced by me john rogers and if anyone would like to pose a sectoral, company-specific question to our panel, feel free to drop me an email at john.rogers at ft.com. That's j-o-h-n dot R-O-G-E-R-S at ft.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you again
1: next week.